Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined by Terry Fakes. And we're going to do a podcast on our second favorite topic. If you weren't doing a Bible book overview, then if we could at least do a regular book overview, that would be great. Absolutely. Uh, I know we're both readers and kind of try to read widely. And uh, I think people enjoy knowing what we're reading. And by the way, we would like to know some good reads that you've had. So feel free to email in to So We Speak and let us know what you're reading right now. We do get a lot of good book recommendations from people that either listen to the podcast or read the blog or just know us and send us things. It's always nice to know what other people are reading and or what people think about the books that have been recommended on here. So we, we've been kind of grouping our books for this one. This is kind of our mid-year book update or summer uh-huh. reading update. And the the interesting thing I think for everybody is you have different places or different zones and genres that you read for, whether you're reading for work to do some continuing education, not everybody's favorite kind of reading usually, but the stuff that you read before bed, the stuff that you read to learn from, the stuff that you read right. to study theology or the Bible. And so I've, I've broken out a couple of different categories for us to recommend some books, just in case you're looking for a specific kind of thing to read. And the first one you might not think about, but uh, for us, kind of a you know job reading or continuing ed kind of reading usually ends up going with teaching series. So right. I don't know if you prep this way. I think you do, but you know, you usually get an idea in your mind for a series somewhere weeks, months before you actually start doing it. And the first thing I always do is kind of sketch a little bit of an overview and figure out where the gaps are. So if it's a topical series, you know, what, which one of these am I the least sure about? If it's a textual series, what commentaries do I have? What intros and backgrounds, what specific things are going to come up in these texts that I might need to do a little bit of research on. And then ideally you have a little bit of time to do some broader reading before you get to the series. And then of course, when you're in it week to week, whether it's textual or topical or any other kind of series, you're doing the specific lessons and you're diving into certain things that are helpful for those weeks. But I try to think of mine ahead of time as general prep for the whole series, trickling down into the individual weeks. And you've got to think about what, you know, two or three good resources among many are going to make the biggest impact for this series. Is that how you do a lot of your prep? It is. Uh, I like to do series research, which of course you're kind of doing all along, whether it's a biblical text, you're, you're just reading as part of your normal reading. My current series is more historical. So, you know, I probably read various things for 20 years on these topics, but I do pick a certain number of books and other resources to uh, do a series research. Then when you get into it week to week, you've already got that information and you're now sorting it, sifting it and applying it because only, a, as you know, only a very small percentage of your research makes it into the lessons because the lessons need to uh, educate people and they need to do it in a way that isn't just a data dump. Mm-hmm. So you need to make it make sense. So yeah, I do the same thing you do. I do a series research and then week to week crafting each lesson. So in this case, I think your current series is a little bit different than the ones you usually do because it is a hybrid of history, contemporary events, and Bible. So if you're, you know, if you're doing a regular Bible teaching series, you know, most people assume, okay, we're looking at commentaries and that kind of thing. Your current series is on the making of modern Israel. So what what do you research or what have been the formative resources for this series? 
A great question. This one I started, I did it. Uh, it's a four week summer series. It's more topical, more historical, not as not as biblical, but it, it's a great summer series, had a lot of requests for it. So I have read a lot on this in general. And uh, basically, I did the first lesson was all the way from, you know, the Abraham to World War One. I. I mean, really light on the ancient history, which was all already in my head. World War One. I, I happen to have a very good understanding of how that all played out and the Ottoman Empire, et cetera, et cetera. But when it gets into more modern times, uh, the War of Independence in 48, the 1967 Six-Day War, the 1973 Yom Kippur War, then the Intifadas with the PLO, Yasser Arafat, and then uh, now uh, Abraham Accords, et cetera. I read, let's see, I think six books getting ready for this. And I'll whip through those if you want, and I'll give you a very brief commentary because some of these different different readers will be interested in. The first is a book that just came out called Leadership by Henry Kissinger. You may know that Kissinger is 99 years old, and he just put this out with six leaders whom he knew and worked with and kind of analyzes their leadership style. I will tell you this, I've read almost everything Henry Kissinger has written. And when it comes to his memoirs, he has, let us say, uh, favorable selective memory at times, but he really is a great writer. Well, it, and kind, he, of, it kind of reminds me, any, anybody that's been that prominent in leadership yes. in history reminds me of the Winston Churchill quote, yes, history will be kind to me for I intend to write it. And that's, that, right. that's Kissinger as well. He was clearly a formative leader, but he has also had the hindsight of a long life afterwards to recount and write about his experiences. That's really true. And, you know, honestly, he's not as bad as most. He's very honest, but here's how he'll do it. Here's one of my great Henry Kissinger quotes from his memoir, basically talking about he'd been criticized for uh, doing a lot of political infighting and that his ego uh, was getting out of control, and he's he's trying to be even-handed. He said, well, and this is what people accuse me of. And then the next sentence is, and history reflects that I did little to dispel that. <laughs> and so what he's saying is, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much true. <laughs> mm -hmm. But he is a great writer. He was personally involved in almost all of these things. And so it just so happens that one of the chapters in the leadership book is on Anwar Sadat. So that's the 1973 war, and he was instrumental, probably the leader, uh, one of the two leaders that Henry Kissinger admired the most. So that's chapters great. In fact, I would recommend that book. The second one is called Six Days of War, and it's on the 1967 war. It's written by Michael Oren. Michael Oren was the Israeli ambassador to the United States recently, and he was still uh, he's still a commentator. And he analyzes the Six-Day War of 67. And it's very thorough, uh, all the politics, all the battles, et cetera. But, I mean, it's written in a very engaging way. Uh, I could be wrong on this one, but I think what's interesting about both of these books is I, I think Michael Oren's book, Six Days of War, is based on his dissertation, which is on uh, the 67 War. And Kissinger right. also has a doctoral degree in history. and um, certainly history and political science together and how that works through, um, you know, foreign policy and shaping U.S. interests abroad. 
both of these guys are academic historians who have become right. great practical statesmen. And I really appreciate exactly. that when you read somebody's book that has that in their background. That's exactly right. And I'll mention now a second one of Kissinger's, and this was written uh, many years ago, but it's called Crisis. It is the anatomy of two major foreign policy crises. The first half of the book is about the Vietnam War, but the second half is literally from his diaries, a moment by moment account of the 1973 Yom Kippur War from hmm. this point of view as so-and-so made a phone call It's uh, to whomever. I mean, it recounts the whole behind the scenes, what was going on. And it's a very powerful drama, if you will. So that's that's another of his that was helpful. A couple that are more accessible. There is a book called Islamic Imperialism by Ephraim Karsh. It is a very readable history of Islamic imperialism from the time of Muhammad all the way to Osama bin Laden. So needless to say, it's nowhere near the detail, but it gives a very interesting picture. So, for example, he has several chapters on Nasser, Anwar Sadat, 67 War, 73 War, and it's just written in a very readable, accessible way. One other like that is a book called Israel. And it's by a lady named Noah Tishby. She's uh, Israeli, and she's an Israeli uh, kind of a celebrity. This book is a little irreverent, but it is very readable, and it gives you the history in it, it without all the details. It's very entertaining. And then finally, for those of you that love the every little blow and counter blow of the battles, there is a book called The Arab-Israeli Wars by Chaim Herzog, and it goes through every Arab-Israeli war and battle and uh, just a lot of the technical details. So at the risk, I'll stop there at the risk of worrying you, but I think that's what six books. And though that was my pre-series research. Uh, and as you know, you like doing that kind of research because you learn so much about it. Mm -hmm. How about you? You also uh, are in a series. What? How did you uh, do your prep? What did you read for it? Well, for the two series I'm doing right now, we're on Sunday mornings, we're doing about six weeks in the Psalms. I think a lot of churches, I think Crossings is doing a Psalm series right now as well. Right. But it's common to do Psalms in the summer. And uh, so preaching through the Psalms, I've really loved in the past. And every time I try to incorporate some kind of new resource or some kind of new insight. And so there's a lot of different resources, but I'll, I'll give you some of my top ones that I recommend. Uh, the first one is Bruce Waltke, who's an Old Testament professor, specializes in uh, Old Testament wisdom literature, taught at DTS for a long time. He has a couple of commentaries that are called the Psalms as Christian Worship and the Psalms as Christian Lament. And in each of those, you maybe have 10 to 15 Psalms. He gives a background. He gives the reception in the history of the church. He gives a detailed exegesis. It, they're really, really thorough. Now, he doesn't have them mm -hmm. for every psalm, but for the ones that he does, it's a really excellent resource of how this psalm has been read throughout church history and how he sees the psalms uh, and, and interprets them. Secondly, Derek Kidner, really anything that Derek Kidner's written on the Old Testament is, is good. He's written the psalms commentaries in the Tyndall Old Testament series. And I always uh -huh. tell people, if you're going to move from a single volume, which I think the best single volume is probably the new Bible commentary. If you're going to mm -hmm. move from a single volume to a multi-volume where you have a volume per book, 
And, you know, there's a million of these. I would say, unless you're really wanting to be technical in the Greek and Hebrew, the Tyndall series is what you should get. Uh, It's what I recommend to Sunday school teachers, small group leaders, people that are just diving in to spend more time in the text. What the Tyndall commentaries do is they usually go find somebody who's written a very technical commentary, who's an evangelical on a specific book. And they say, why don't you take your thousand page book and make it 200 pages? And so they bring in a real depth of scholarship. You get really top notch scholars, but you get a very readable and not tedious commentary. And so Kidner has done two volumes on the Psalms that are both about, I don't know, 250 pages or so. Really, really good insight, but not super long. I love I love those right. for any, any teaching series. James Montgomery Boyce was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. His commentaries are kind of sermons mixed with a commentary, so you get a little bit of applicational insight. I think his, his insight into the text is excellent. Really, really good. And then you know, anybody else that you can find on the Psalms is always helpful. I, I love reading for the Psalms, usually late in the sermon prep process. I love reading Eugene Peterson's translation or paraphrase of the Psalms in the message. They always give you mm-hmm. a, an interesting angle to see what he's what he's making of these Psalms. The second thing is I'm teaching through the book of Romans, the first five chapters of Romans in our Bible study right now that meets every other Wednesday night. And Romans, especially, there are a million good commentaries on Romans. Everyone has written on Romans. It, the, the, the hard part about Romans and prepping for a series on Romans is sorting through all the material. You really need to pick a few people and go with them theologically just to tease out the text in a way that's you're able to teach it. So I'll I'll give three recommendations here. The most technical, and this would be if you're looking to dive into the actual Greek text and a lot of the scholarly issues that are in the book of Romans, I would say Cranfield's commentary. His name is classic C.E.B. Cranfield, Charles Cranfield. It's in the ICC series, the International Critical Commentaries, two-volume, excellent commentary. Doug Moo has a great commentary in the New International Commentary on the New Testament, slightly less technical. And then a commentary series I've really uh, benefited from and been enjoying is the new Lexham Press Evangelical Biblical Theology Commentary, and it's and it's yeah. by Peterson. And what I really like about it is instead of just getting uh, – textual commentary on each verse in all of these volumes you have a couple hundred pages of biblical theology and that just means you're tracing themes in scripture all the way through you're showing how the book of romans fits with the broader scope of scripture the broader themes that are introduced in paul's letters that's really helpful the one that tom schreiner did on hebrews is very helpful to connect Mm -hmm. hebrews with the theology of the old testament uh, there's one on Psalms that Jim Hamilton has done that I've been using as well. So it's one that you put in the hopper at the beginning of the series or in the pre-prep for a series because you want to know the big overview, the 30,000-foot view of this book, and you read that section before you read the detailed commentary. So I've I've really been enjoying those in these two series for prep for teaching and preaching. You know, it's really wise of you on Romans. It's so easy because it's so complex and so rich to get lost in the text and the idea of connecting Romans to the bigger themes is really a great idea because you could, you could spend your whole life just in the woods, if you will, 
Mm-hmm. One other thought, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, but what I've used for uh, groups before is Cranfield's two-volume Romans is they have a shorter commentary out. It's a paperback. It's maybe an inch thick. It's it, They've taken out all of the Greek language stuff and so forth and just left the core commentary. And it's so it's called Romans, a shorter commentary by C.E.B. Cranfield. This is much more accessible, but it still has all the scholarship in it. Oh, that's so interesting. So for those yeah. of you that aren't, aren't really wanting to dig through two volumes and a lot of uh, Greek exegesis, that shorter commentary gives you Cranfield's insights. Another little section of books this summer that I thought might be interesting, uh, and I get this question every now and then, what, what kind of books do you go through with interns, residents, young pastors, hmm. people in ministry? We have two youth and family residents at our church this summer that are doing a great job. And part of that residency is getting together each week and uh, talking about ministry, calling, building some skills in ministry, but also reading some things as, as a jump off point for discussion. And uh, the three books that we've been reading this summer, uh, the, the one that's kind of the centerpiece is The Pastor by Eugene Peterson, which I think we've read and discussed before. It's a, it's different than a lot of pastoring books because it's a memoir. It's not a blow by blow. Here's what to do and not do as a right. pastor. But but it's really, really instructive in the stories that he tells in the depth of what he explores in terms of his calling and Sabbath and motivation in ministry, disappointment joys, being there with people in the highs and lows. He's really a pastor's pastor. And so this memoir is just an open book into what it looks like in everyday life to be a pastor. Um, That one's been really great for discussion. And I would say people, even people that are not pastors would really enjoy this. If you're interested in what it looks like to really do ministry, life on life ministry in a church context, this is a great book to read. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think that's really important that you have particular things you like to bring interns through. I use uh, another Peterson book that I know you do too. It's uh, called The Contemplative Pastor or Contemplative Pastor. And I love in it because he gives the idea of what does it actually mean to be a pastor, short paperback. Peterson, like you say, is probably the pastor's pastor. And uh, I don't, I think even if you aren't going to be a pastor, that kind of a book is really useful in terms of what, as a Christian, how am I going to minister to other people? And what's the heart of ministering to other people? We In the modern church, we do so many programs, and those are good things. But when it comes down to person to person, every one of us is, in a sense, a pastor in that we will you know, be interacting with other people. So I, I like that a lot. The second well, one we've been about, doing is uh, Ave Curavilla's book, A Manual for Preaching. Do you know this one? Oh, yeah. That's classic, but that's deep water. That is not, yeah. uh, that's not the shallow end of the pool, Cole. Yeah, I like Curavilla. It is a little bit thick to wade through, but I like Curavilla's theory of preaching probably the best of the preaching books that I've read. He has a vision for preaching and a manual for preaching. A manual for preaching is a lot more practical. And Curavilla's main point is that we in teaching and preaching need to be doing what the text is doing, not just summarizing and saying in our own words uh, or fleshing out differently what the text is saying. And that's a whole, we should do a whole podcast on this probably. It's, there's, it's, a, it's a subtle difference in some ways, 
but it makes a big difference in how you preach certain texts. Um, I think a lot of people's default is to take a narrative, let's say, bring it down to its basic points and represent it not as a narrative anymore, as a set of declarative sentences as an outline and then or something. Preach yeah. it with your own narratives. And I, I think that that isn't, doesn't really do justice to what the text is doing. God could have given us a summary if he wanted to, but he didn't. He gave us narratives. So how do you preach a narrative so that the narrative itself has the force that it has in the text when you're preaching it? So and and his whole deal with preaching is trying to uncover that force or the thrust of the text and allowing that to come through as you preach that text. And so we've read that one. And then third, we're reading Ed Welch's book. It's This is like an 80-page book. It's called Caring for One Another. And I would recommend this to any small group leader. I would really recommend this to any small group participant for how we walk with one another in relationships that are honoring to God. The vulnerability of being prayed for, how to ask good questions of each other, how to hold each other accountable in a way that actually helps us to repent. It's a great little book on walking with each other relationally in Christ. And so those three have, have led to a lot of great conversations over the summer and uh, really building into those ministry habits and skills that you need to have. So we changed those up a lot, but that's what we're doing this summer. So broadening out to just regular reading, what have you been through over the summer? Well, let's see. I took a representative sample. I, I am a reader of biographies and memoirs, and so I've read a couple of political memoirs that I would probably recommend. I read one theology book, and then I've read a couple of books that really have been great for my soul. And so maybe uh, go in reverse order. Crossway has started publishing some real classics of the Christian faith, and they're publishing them in small books, little four inch by six inch paperback booklets. And it's called the uh, Crossway Short Classics series. And they're each small. They're generally a sermon or a couple of sermons from some of the great heroes of the faith. So there were two of these that really impressed me. The first is called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. This was written by Thomas Chalmers, he lived from 1780 to 1847. He was a Scottish Presbyterian. So this whole series is, is kind of like that. People in the 1700s, 1800s, a couple modern uh, people as well. But when I read that, you can tell from the title, his theme in this, it's either a long sermon or a very, very short book, is the idea of exchanging an old affection for a new one. And basically our love of the world and our worldly heart our affections for the world need to not just be stopped, like you could just with willpower quit loving the world. They need to be displaced with the love of God. And that is the expelling power of that new affection. That simple idea, but the way he presents it was very good for me, a very uh, practical. The second was from Charles Spurgeon. And this one was very interesting. I'd love to know your your impression on this topic in general. But people that know Spurgeon know that he was affected by, I don't know if I would call it, that's probably clinical depression, but he was away from preaching for certain periods of time. And he wrote a book called Encouragement for the Depressed. And Charles Spurgeon, you may remember, lived in the 1800s, latter part of the 1800s in England. He's called the Prince of Preachers. I mean, just a great preacher. 
but he himself went through periods of depression. And this is encouragement for us as Christians when we go through those periods. Here's an interesting, I'll give you one quote from the little work. It says, our work, when earnestly undertaken, lays us open to attacks in the direction of depression. And then he asks, who can bear the weight of souls without sometimes sinking to the dust? And I would say that this is probably a more common issue for pastors and for Christians. And again, I'm not talking about necessarily particularly clinical psychological depression, but this sort of spiritual depression. I don't know if you've read this, Cole, but I suspect you have comments on the topic at least. Well, I've always looked to Spurgeon as somebody who did deal with depression, but dealt with it in a godly way. I think there's kind of probably two ditches to run into, and that is that, you know, no Christian should ever feel depressed because, you know, after all, we are so joyful in God. How could we ever be depressed? I think, you know, just read a little bit of Paul's letters and you'll find out that there are, there are cases of very severe spiritual depression. And then the other side of that, you know, depression is only chemical. And it's only something mm-hmm. for, you know, psychiatric and counseling care to deal with. And that that's not true either. Uh, those people can be very, very helpful and they have a lot of expertise. Uh, but there's usually a part of depression that either stems from or certainly reaches into your spiritual life as well. And so I think more pastors should be versed in talking about both clinical and just spiritual depression. There's another book, uh, I think it was written by Zach Eswine, called Spurgeon's Sorrows, that talks about how Spurgeon dealt with depression in his life. And I mean, real debilitating depression, where there would be times, uh, sometimes as much as once a year in his ministry, that he would not mm-hmm. be able to preach or minister. He would be almost like bedridden from his depression. And uh, that's, I have not read that book, but I would imagine it's really, really good. I have read The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, and I'll say the Chalmers part is excellent about replacing something in your life with something else. But I, but John Piper wrote the foreword for that book, and I thought the foreword yes. was worth the price of the book, honestly. It was such a great summary of the point of this. I, I can't remember if it is an essay or a sermon, but it's it's a great, great introduction to this theme of growing in God by replacing what you used to love with what you now love, which is God. And so uh, this series is great. The one I have liked the most in this series is called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. And it's by Henry Skugel or Henry Scougel. And Joel Beakey wrote the foreword for that. And it's another just classic Puritan work that's practical. It's easy to read and uh, really, really helpful. You know, that's interesting because that's what I'm reading now in this series. And if oh, really? I'm not mistaken, Skugel is, or uh, however you say his name, he died when he was 28 years old yeah. of tuberculosis. And, you know, there's, there is a little side note here that Spurgeon, for all his reputation, for all his productivity, for all his, the, the good kingdom work that he did, suffering with this depression, Skugel, who is, we still read this sermon today and yet died at such a young age, I think it's just encouraging to us that God uses, he doesn't use superstars, he uses regular people. And we we think about these people as superstars, but, you know, they really weren't. They're Mm -hmm. people just like us. And I think that's encouraging to know their their, uh, humanity as well. Right. Well, speaking of two of those authors, uh, two of the books I've read recently, uh, the first one is What is Saving Faith? 
by John Piper. Of course, I'll, I'll read pretty much anything Piper puts out. And I saw this book out from Crossway and I thought, man, this is going to be really good. It was more, uh, it was probably a little bit more scholarly than I expected. And Piper has books that are on two levels. You have Don't Waste Your Life, which is really a practical, helpful book for anybody. And then you have books like this or his recent book, Providence, which is a biblical theology of providence in the Bible. Uh, This one, What is Saving Faith, is a very exegetical, very detailed look at what accompanies or what is essential to saving faith. And it gets into justification and sanctification. And the the main argument, though, and I, I think this is really intriguing from a pastoral standpoint, is he's asking the question, does affection for God, a zeal for God, a love for God and for the things of God accompany, or is it part of, essential to saving faith? And he goes through the whole, well, if it is, is it a, is it adding something so that now you don't have faith alone, you have faith plus these affections alone. And the way he argues is no, actually the affections for God that we have because the spirit is at work in us is saving faith. So our belief Hmm. is made up of a change of affections, a desire for God, a love for God. And I think he probably got some pushback on this especially from the very reformed crowd who's going to say, well, that certainly sounds like uh, uh, it comes downstream from faith, but it's hard to say that that in and of itself is faith. And so that's an interesting argument to get into, but he does a good job scripturally of diving into this topic. Certainly from a pastoral perspective, you wonder how there can be saving faith without either in the faith itself or downstream from the faith a turning, a new desire, a, a walking away from the old life, kind of what we were just talking about, uh, the explosive power of the new affection. If you have new affections, um, or if you don't have new affections, how do we know that you really have saving faith? And so th- it was a very interesting read. The two others uh, that I've read are Joel Beakey's book, Taking Hold of God, which is a book on hmm. Puritan pre- uh, Puritan praying. So he goes through and does little biographical sketches yes of these prayers and then certain uh, themes among the Puritans in their prayers. It was a great, it was a great devotional read for me and just deepening my own prayer life. Uh, I'll throw out another Christian book I'm reading right now. I'm almost done with it. And I don't even know what I think about it yet because it's just been such a wild book is called the unseen realm by Michael Heiser. Have you read that book? Yes. Uh-huh. I, I haven't read that years book. old but it's been recommended to me several times. Yeah, and, I think it's uh, highly recommended. A few years ago and I I didn't jump on it immediately, but then I picked it up uh, probably about a month ago and I'm almost done with it. It's really fascinating. So it's a whole look at the Bible through what he claims the Jews would have thought of the supernatural points of the Bible. Some of them are the really mm-hmm. obvious ones when you're on a Bible reading plan, the uh, sons of God and the daughters of men. In Genesis chapter six, what's that all about? What are these giants doing? You know, what, what do we have with this talking snake in the Garden of Eden? And, and his point is, if you know Jewish culture and you read the text the way they would have read it, there's a whole spiritual realm and world. There are these supernatural beings that are created. So they're not like God, but they're not like human right. beings. They're, they're not even just angels. They are really demigods, temporal demigods that... When you see in the Psalms, he says, the Lord takes his seat in the council of the gods. 
Well, that mm-hmm. that is Elohim in both places, which is a plural. It's used for the name right. of God, like Yahweh God, but it's also it also can just mean gods. And so mm-hmm. he's arguing, yes, there are these other beings, demigods almost. And that's who some of these people are worshiping in Canaan and in Egypt. And, you know, you get that from Paul when he says, you know, there's no, you know, these idols really have nothing at all, but they might be uh, spiritual powers that people have been deceived by. So it takes a what I would consider kind of a minor theme and makes it a major theme. And like I said, I don't know if I buy all of it, but it's it's certainly been a fascinating read. It will change the way you see a lot of these biblical stories. Tower of Babel is another one where he thinks there's a lot of spiritual elements going on that we don't see the way we read it. It's it's been fascinating, but uh, the jury's out to me if I if I really think he's proved his point or not. But it's uh, it's a really good read. It does seem like the people that have talked to me about it, so this is very secondhand, have said it it uh, increased their appreciation for the reality of the spiritual realm. And again, I'd say whether or not that's how Jews would have read it, uh, I don't know if I'm convinced of that or not, but I do think that they had a very real perception of the spiritual realm. You know, for me, I read a, a book of theology. We probably people have heard of the Niebuhr brothers, Reinhold Niebuhr and Richard Niebuhr from the 20th century. They're both theologians. And Reinhold gets, I think, probably the lion's share of, uh, of credit as a theologian. But I read an older book from like 1988. It's called The Kingdom of God in America by Richard Niebuhr. And it's a critique of liberal Christianity. And it's not petty. It's actually an in-depth, thoughtful critique of the, the liberal Christianity that's really rising in the 80s. You know, you can see it as a recognizable movement at that point in time. And I just have found his writing accessible. His insights are, are really good. He's Again, he's not just name-calling. He's actually analyzing the rise of, of liberal Christianity. Probably the greatest line in the book, maybe the greatest line Niebuhr's, uh, Richard Niebuhr ever said was, in describing liberal Christianity, he said, a God without wrath came to men without sin to usher in a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. So needless to say, he doesn't have a favorable view of liberal Christianity, but his analysis is really good. I I found that, even though it's a little older theological book, to be really informative. Yeah, that's kind of a pillar in the history of American theology. I think that's a that's a great one to read. Uh, in the non-Christian books, I'm reading Eric Berger's Liftoff, which is the history of SpaceX and oh. Elon Musk's uh, attempt to take us to Mars. It's, it's really been eye-opening. Of course, you read all the stuff about Musk, especially now with the Twitter deal and everything that's surrounding him, but just the amount of problems that he was able to solve with a kind of ragtag group of former NASA and former rocket engineers that no one had really been able to solve before. You know, how do you bring the cost of rockets down so that you could have commercial flights to outer space and to Mars? How do you make engines that power big enough rockets to get to Mars uh, into orbit? Really fascinating stuff. You think of Musk as a business guy. He really is a first-rate engineer, and he's a first-rate business guy. He interviewed, personally interviewed, and hired the first 2,000 hires at SpaceX, and that's not to mention wow. Tesla and 
the boring uh-huh. company and the other things that he's done. So it, it's been a really interesting book. It's a great read. It's pretty short, but it will give you an appreciation for all that's required for space flight. And also why several of these billionaire guys are racing with space. Space presents some, some very unique problems. There's a huge barrier to entry. There's a lot of government uh-huh. lobbying that has to be done. So it's an intriguing book and, and it's one that I've really enjoyed. Uh, another one that, uh, I'm just starting, but I think it's going to be a good one, but it's like an 800 page book is called America's book by Mark Knoll. And Mark Knoll is one of the premier Christian historians. It's been at Notre Dame and other places, but it's about the role of the Bible in the history of America. So from the founding, uh, basically right after the American revolution, all the way up until, about 40 or 50 years ago, what was the role of the Bible in America? And he wrote a book earlier that I have not read about the Bible in the colonial and pre-colonial days in America as well. But this one I thought would be really interesting, especially the part on the Civil War up through the 1950s and 60s. I thought would be interesting to see what, what, what was the role of the Bible? How was it used? How did our view of it change? And he's the premier guy to talk about it. That sounds fascinating. It would be interesting to see, you know, you think about the era of slavery, the era of a civil war between American versus American people on both sides praying for God to favor their side. How does the Bible influence? How is it read? How does it influence the Christians of the time? That sounds fascinating. You know, at 800 pages, though, I might wait for you to give the summary on that. Yeah, I'll give a I'll give as short a summary as I can. Uh, for me, in the heathen book category, I have read a couple of really pretty good political memoirs. Almost everyone is trying to cash in on the Trump presidency who was in that administration, but there are two that I would recommend if you want to read these. The first is by William Barr, Bill Barr, the attorney general for Trump. And he wrote, uh, it's actually a memoir of his whole life, but obviously there's a lot of of the Trump era in it because he was attorney general twice. But the book is called One Damn Thing After Another. And it comes from a quote when he was thinking about becoming attorney general, he called a former attorney general and he said, you know, what's the nature of the job? And the guy said, well, basically it's just one damn thing after another. And so that's what he entitled the memoir. It is very well written. I think you'll like Bill Barr. I think you'll see that he's a a very honest and ethical individual, and he just traces his career. His insights into the Trump White House are interesting, and not just – he really doesn't – it's not a kiss and tell thing. He just talks about substantive disagreements or the way things played out, and he's very even-handed. The second one is by Kellyanne Conway. It's called Here's the Deal, and it's very different. But if you remember, Kellyanne Conway actually is the – only person to leave the Trump White House without being fired, I think. And so she was the campaign manager for the successful Trump campaign in uh, 16. And she is the first female to run a successful presidential campaign. She is an impressive lady. She, this again is also a bit of a life memoir, but with a huge focus on the Trump years. She, if you've seen her, is very impressive. If you don't share her politics, you may or may not like her as well, but she is a very impressive individual. And it's very interesting to listen to how she navigated the Trump years and how uh, the effect that she had. 
She also brings an interesting perspective, being a woman in a man's game. And that was, uh, it wasn't eye-opening to me, but it was very interesting to me to hear her perspective on how she was treated and how she had to really earn the respect that she got. So I would say Bill Barr and Kellyanne Conway's are probably the pick of the litter of the memoirs from the Trump era, but they were both quite good. Yeah, I would agree. I, I've, I haven't read the Kellyanne Conway book, but I've listened to her on several interviews and thought that that sounded like an interesting book. The The two memoirs at the end of the Trump presidency I wanted to read were Bill Barr's and Jared Kushner's. And Kushner's looks like it'll come out in the fall or in the spring of next year. Bars is really good. This will also be the first So We Speak podcast with a little explicit icon next to it, thanks to Bill Barr. Um, but I thought one damn thing after another was really good. It, the thing I liked about it was it, it's a true memoir in the sense that it's not just a biography or an autobiography where he's narrating the events of his life. Once you get to the White House the first time, every chapter is over an issue, and he gives you right. his substantive breakdown of the issue so that when you get done with the book, you might not know all the personal details of his wife. There's not a ton in there. There, There's some interesting things in there about his family, his wife and kids that you get to walk through with him. But mostly what you'll know when you finish this book is how he thinks. How does he break down certain issues? Crime is one of his big things. That was his passion in uh, the first Bush White House. It was his passion in the Trump White House. Of course, you have all these riots going on during that time. And some of that, he was actually there afterwards, but he's bringing this crime mindset and trying to fix Mm -hmm. what are pretty perennial problems in American cities. Of course, he's advising the president on the legality of everything, which in the White House, in the Trump White House, is a job way too big for one person. Was a a busy job, yeah. He's got several key allies. He has an interesting relationship with Meadows and Cipollone and some of those guys. Uh, mm-hmm. You will you probably if you really love Trump and or you really hate Trump, you'll find some things that are interesting in there, because I think Barr is a, just a pretty straight shooter. He has principles right. that he lives by. He doesn't really compromise those. But he does favor the policy agenda that he was trying to carry out uh, or that the Trump administration was carrying out. And part of his job is to be a part of that. And part of his job is to be objective away from that. And that that's an interesting part right. of the attorney general role that comes through in that book. But that, that was a really good one. If you're going to read one memoir from the Trump White House, that would be the one I would pick. I would agree. That was worth the read. And just because I learned a lot out of it, uh, just in terms of I learned about the crime, learned about drugs. And he's a real straight shooter on those things. He He's not partisan. He just wants to solve the problem. And mm-hmm. that was very refreshing. And I learned a lot about those issues. So what's up next for you, Cole? What do you what do you have on your nightstand that you're waiting to get to? Well, I always have always have a little stack of books I'm getting to. I have several that I'm reviewing for different things right now, and those are sometimes really good reads and sometimes not. But uh, the two I'm really looking forward to in the summers, whenever we've gone on vacation in the past. I've always loved to get a Western going. I love the Louis L'Amour books. I've recommended those. I love the Longmire books. The Library of America put out a a book called The Western, and it's four Western novels. And uh, Mm -hmm. they're from the 40s and 50s. And uh, the most famous one is Shane, which was made into a big time movie. But the one I haven't read in that book so far is called Warlock. And I'm Mm -hmm. looking forward to reading that one this summer. Uh, The other kind of Western 
type book. It's called Across the Wide Missouri by Bernard DeVoto, who actually won the Nobel or the uh, he won the Pulitzer Prize for this book, I think, in the 1950s or 60s. I could be wrong about that detail, but uh, it's really well written and it's about westward expansion. It's about the people that left to go hunt and trap people who went to Homestead and crossed the Mississippi River, crossed the Missouri River to look for a new life. And so those, those are kind of off the regular path uh, of the yearly reading, but I always enjoy something like that in July and August. Yeah. Well, that's, it is a good time to indulge just some light reading. I am picking chess back up after several decades of not really playing much. And so I'm getting a little bit more into it. So I have been working through games of Magnus Carlsen, current world champion, has been the world champion for a long time. He published a book about his pick of his 60 top games. And that's been really interesting to me. It's good mental exercise, but it just reconnects me with an old hobby of mine from way back. The other thing is very uh, kind of a narrow thing, but I'm going to reread a book by David Berlinski. And I don't know if people know David Berlinski. This guy is brilliant. He's a secular Jew, but he really, uh, he's mathematician by training. I mean, he, this guy's got a lot of degrees. He is really a sharp guy, but his writing is the wittiest writing I have ever read. And so he wrote a, a couple of books on the Darwinian theory, which he just, he's not religious. He just doesn't accept Darwinian theory. And so he has some interesting critiques and believe me, they're not lightweight critiques. He's really well-informed on the biology, on statistics, on, on everything. Uh, but he wrote a book called Human Nature, and it's just essays on various topics and various people. And he he is just very witty. And I actually read it because I just enjoy the way he talks. He writes the way he talks, and I just enjoy it. So pure pleasure reading. If you ever want to see somebody with as sharp a wit as you'll ever find, David Berlinski is your guy. Yeah, he's always he's always fun to read. Well, that will wrap up our recommendations for the summer and things that we've been reading. If you've got something that we should read or if you have something that you've really loved, send it to us at info at soweespeak.com, post it on our social media, send us a message on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, and uh, we'd love to know what you guys are reading. So until next time, thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.